Well, with that, I want to begin this morning by reading in Matthew chapter 28. And I'm going to read through the entirety of the chapter, though this morning we'll, we will be considering our time together will be in the first 17 verses. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble." And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pause quickly to ask that you would now bless the reading of your word and you would help as I preach that we would understand together and that we would have a deeper love and affection for Jesus. We ask this that we might worship him in his name. Amen. At the death of Jesus, while he was hanging on a cross, 
just outside the walls from Jerusalem. Think of that, Jerusalem's king, the Messiah, hanging on a Roman cross outside his own capital city. There was, we learn in chapter 27, a group of women who were viewing what was going on from a distance. In verse 55 of chapter 27, we're told many women were looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These were women who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, the long-awaited promised Messiah. And they had counted it a privilege to go along with the other disciples and the, the group that was with Jesus to impart, to see to their needs and to support the ministry of Christ. They loved Jesus. They were devoted to him as disciples. They believed he was their king and their Lord. And now they had seen him hanging brutally on a Roman cross. And they witnessed his death. But Mary and Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, verse 61, we learn, were persistent. Other disciples were not to be found at the death of Jesus except John. But even towards the end of the account of Christ's death and then at the burial, we don't find any of the disciples, at least any of the men. All we find is, well, we find two disciples, but they were two disciples that had been secret disciples. A rich man named Joseph of Arimathea and then Nicodemus, one of the leading Pharisees, teachers of Israel. They had seen to it that Jesus was removed from the cross, that he was wrapped in a costly linen with the appropriate spices, as was the Jewish custom. And hurriedly, on Friday late afternoon, we would call it, before the beginning of Sabbath, with the onset of evening, they laid the body of Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's brand new costly tomb. And these women, in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, this Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, as I said, they were persistent. The other disciples had gone away, but these women were not going to leave their Lord. And they were going to see to it that their Lord received the honor in his burial that he was due. And it is not incidental that the Holy Spirit notes in the Gospel of Matthew that these women were there at the death of Jesus. These women were there when Jesus was buried. And now we come on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. And who do we find as the first ones early in the morning at the very hint of light coming to the tomb? Verse 1, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They had waited anxiously through the evening on Friday, what we would call Friday. They had waited all day the Sabbath. It was supposed to be the greatest Sabbath of the year. The Sabbath after the Passover was supposed to be the, the high Sabbath, the greatest Sabbath of the year. But for them, this Sabbath, along with the other disciples, had been the worst of all. Their Lord was laid in a tomb, dead, 
and they couldn't even get to him to make certain that he was lovingly cared for and that he was buried in a manner that was fitting a king. They waited painfully all through the day into the evening on the Sabbath, Saturday we would call it, and perhaps they did not sleep at all that night because they knew that the first opportunity they would have legally in the society at that time to go and see to the body of Jesus would be at first light on the day after the Sabbath. And upon their arrival, they perhaps had a moment to notice to their dismay that between the time from Friday and to this, what we call Sunday morning, a Roman guard had been appointed. We learned at the end of chapter 27 that the council of the high priests and the Pharisees, when they had learned what Joseph of Arimathea had done in providing his own tomb, they were incensed, they were infuriated, and they broke the Sabbath, and they went to meet with Pilate and insisted that Pilate appoint a guard, a contingent of Roman soldiers, and put the seal on the tomb to make sure that the disciples wouldn't mess with the tomb and then claim later that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, their scheme only provided more evidence for the reality in the resurrection of the resurrection of Christ because we now have not only the witness of the women, we have the witness of these Roman guards And we had the fact that even though the tomb was guarded by a contingent of Roman soldiers to this day, you can't explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they would have noticed the Roman guard and they would have perhaps for a brief moment have been dismayed because doubtless the Roman soldiers would not have permitted these women to enter the tomb. There's a seal on the tomb. And these women from Galilee, of all places, way up in the north, these nobody women, were not going to be able to have access to the grave. They were under strict orders, the soldiers, that no one was to have access to that tomb. The women perhaps noticed the soldiers. The soldiers perhaps noticed the women. But then the earth began to shake. The exact timing, we don't know, and, but, but this is all happening within a relatively brief amount of time. We're told in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, maybe while the women were in transit, or maybe when they just were on the edge of seeing the soldiers. There was a large earthquake, and this is just like the earthquake that had happened when Jesus had breathed his last. Back over to chapter 27, verse 51. The earth shook and the rocks split. Now, earthquakes are relatively common in that part of the world. There's a major fault line that passes through where the Dead Sea is, and And so these folks were maybe accustomed to tremors somewhat like those maybe living out in in the area of Los Angeles out on the West Coast. But this was no regular earthquake. This shook the ground and the soldiers knew what nobody else in Jerusalem at that time knew. 
think about it, everybody in the city is, is being wakened by this massive earthquake. So nobody's sleeping at dawn in Jerusalem on this day. Everybody's up because the entire city has been shaken with a severe earthquake. But the soldiers at the tomb know what nobody else knows in that they're able to make a connection. The earthquake happens when an angel from God comes to the place of the tomb. Verse 2, a severe earthquake occurred for, that is a, a word of explanation, because of, the reason for, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled away the stone, and sat upon it. There was a new guard of the tomb. Uh, There was a new contingent of soldiers there. And this representation of of an angel of the Lord was, and the earthquake was somewhat like when God had appeared to his people at Mount Sinai. There was a massive earthquake, and the scriptures tell us that, that there were angels there at Mount Sinai that accompanied the giving of the law. God had come to the tomb visited and uh, by representatives of his holy armies. So the angel was there and the soldiers, these seasoned, battle-hardened men were scared out of their wits. They were shaken by the earthquake, but that's not what scared them the most. They were terrified, verse 4, by appearance of the angel. And his appearance is fascinating, verse 3. Have you ever noticed this? His appearance was like lightning. Now think about that. Um, Lightning is extraordinarily bright. It flashes for a millisecond, but yet the flash, if you're in the dark, lingers in your eyes. It's just, it's that bright can see it from space if you happen to be orbiting the earth. It's that bright. It's that powerful. And his appearance was like lightning. It doesn't mean he was lightning. It's just trying to use human words to describe the, the brilliance of the glory of this angel of God. And the scriptures are clear that the angels of God reflect something of his glory they are in and of themselves amazing creatures but they are amazing made by God to reflect the holiness and the glory of God his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow purity holiness brilliance we haven't heard that kind of description since Jesus was transfigured before his disciples chapters earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're told that his face shone like the sun and his clothes were white as snow. Interesting that the angels had the appearance of lightning. Jesus shines like the sun. This was no common earthquake. This was no common soldier. This angel of the Lord had been sent by God the Father to accompany 
and honor the resurrection of his son. He rolled away the stone. And note, Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away for him. Uh, He didn't need help. Later, and actually we read it this morning in the responsive reading, in the Gospel of John, we learned that after his resurrection, later when his disciples were huddled together in a room reasonably for fear of, of themselves being arrested and perhaps crucified, Jesus just appears and walks through the door. He has a body, a resurrection body, but apparently in his resurrection body, he has the power to just appear. Doors are no issue. So if a door is no issue, a tomb is no issue. Jesus doesn't need the stone rolled away. But the disciples, these women and the other disciples, like Peter, needed to see the stone rolled away. They needed to see the empty grave. They needed to see the linen cloth that Jesus had been wrapped in, still lying there in the tomb, so that they might see and believe the truth. Well, the soldiers were terrified and Verse 4 tells us they became like dead men. They, they fainted. They passed out. Uh, either that or they were just incapacitated, just, just there. Maybe their eyes were still open, but they were frozen. Utter terror at this heavenly soldier that just showed up. And the women were afraid, too. We all would be. All of us would be. We'd be, we'd be terrified by the earth shaking underneath of us. And then we'd be terrified by suddenly this angelic being being in our presence whose face was like lightning and clothes as white as a fresh snow. They were terrified too, but the angel, verse 5, said to the women, do not be afraid. Notice he didn't say that to the soldiers. I kind of like that. He, He was fine with them being afraid. But to the women who were Jesus's loyal, loving disciples, who had come to honor their Lord, the angel has a message from God. He says to them, do not be afraid. He does not want these these godly women to be afraid. They have no need to be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Just as he said. He invites them to come and Take a look at the tomb. I'm, we learned that that there were that Mary looked in, that Peter ultimately looked in, and they could see that the place was empty. the The burial clothes were still there. And Jesus had told them that's what would happen, just as he said. Why does the angel say that? He is risen, just as he, Jesus, said. Because that's exactly what Jesus had said. Let me remind you for a few moments. You don't need to turn there, but you can write these down if you're taking notes, some of you. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus had prophesied, told everybody there that he would die and that he would rise from the dead. Just like Jonah, he said, was in the whale for three days and three nights, the belly of the sea monster, so the son of man, he said, and that was a messianic title that Jesus used about himself, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's just a a saying that means that, that for part of 
those three days, he would be in the grave. He was in the grave Friday. He was in the grave Saturday. He was in the grave through the night Sunday and rose on the third day. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, scribes, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Now, here we are in Matthew chapter 28. That's all the way back in chapter 16, a long time ago. And he's telling his disciples, hey, guys, I want to tell you the plan. Here's exactly how it's going to go down. Um, I, I know and I appreciate you believe I'm the Messiah. I am here to conquer, but I need to fulfill the scriptures first in that the Messiah needs to suffer, he needs to die, and he needs to be raised. And the disciples completely missed that message in the Old Testament. That, that, that didn't fit for them. Remember, Peter said to Jesus, God, Lord, forbid that that this should happen to you. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. They just refused to hear what Jesus had said, but he said it repeatedly. Again, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So here he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were there. They saw Jesus transformed like the glorious Son of God that he is. And as they were coming down from that, Jesus told them, don't tell me about this until I rise from the dead. He told them he would rise from the dead. Matthew 17, verse 22. While they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Is that unclear? That's pretty detailed. I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of men. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise on the third day. Jesus had openly clearly, repeatedly declared to his disciples that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And he did. Because Jesus does what he says. And Jesus does what he says because he's like his father. He is the son of God. And God, God does what he says. And that's the main burden of the Gospel of Matthew. This book is making a very forward and significant claim to every one of us here this morning. This is not nice ancient literature that, you know, is kind of just for sentimental reflecting upon. It's it's serious. I already got one, thanks, but thank you. (laughs) Sometimes water just doesn't help. Thanks, Matt. In the beginning of the gospel, do you remember around Christmas time when the wise men come? Kids, do you remember the wise men? Yeah, remember them? What do they do when they come and they see baby Jesus? They give him gifts, and they fall down before him, and they worship him. You remember that? 
They worship him. Along the way, when those who were delivered from demonic oppression or blindness, when they are healed, what do they do? They fall down and worship him. In Matthew chapter 28, when the women see Jesus, verse 9, and Jesus meets them and greets them, what do they do? Verse 9. They come up, they fall on their feet in an act of adoration and in reverence. They lay hold of his feet and they worship him. And then at the end of chapter 28, in verse 17, when the disciples see the risen Christ in Galilee, they saw him, they worshiped him. This book is after your worship. And mine, that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the King of the Jews and he is the King of the world. That he is our maker, our creator, our redeemer, our Lord and our King. And we must worship him. Wow. And by the way, we all worship someone or something. We may even think of ourselves as not very religious What is worship? Worship is really not very complicated. Worship is what you value and what you esteem to be worthy of praise, worthy of hope, worthy of trust, worthy of telling other people about. What's pathetic today in our culture, we tend to think, oh, we're not like those ancient people who were so foolish and worshipped idols. No, we just worship things like, I don't know, cars and the latest health routine on Instagram. We tell each other about the greatest diet. Or, and, and literally, men and women spend their life praising this, that, or the other thing of these kinds of ordinary things, and then they die. We were made for much more than that. We were made, all of us, to be worshipers, And God would have us worship his son. That's what the gospel of Matthew is after. Well, if you're going to worship Jesus, if you're going to worship somebody, you need to know that they really are. They really are the king. I mean, if you're going to give your whole life and worship him, how would you know? How would you know that this guy, Jesus, He's the one that you should give your life to, that you should tell others about, that you should honor and worship. How would you know that? Because there's a lot of counterfeits. There are false Christs. There are liars. There are men throughout cultures and throughout the history of mankind who have claimed to be someone that we should honor and worship. We all know that Uh, Our politicians on both sides of the aisle these days like to think that they are worthy of worship. Why would you give your worship to this Jesus? How, How would you know that he's the one you should give your worship to? Well, the Gospel of Matthew all throughout has been concerned with demonstrating again and again and again that Jesus is the fulfillment of promises and prophecies given in the Old Testament from hundreds of years earlier. 
That's been a major theme of this book, and we've seen that as we've gone along. We've just seen how the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate author of the Gospel of Matthew, who moved Matthew to write this Gospel, is constantly pointing us back to something that some prophet said hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. And that pattern continues all the way through the cross of Christ. We saw Friday night in his burial that Isaiah says, the prophet Isaiah living almost 800 years before the birth of Christ, telling us that the Messiah, that his, he would be with a rich man in his death. And unexpectedly, out of nowhere, shows up this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who happens to be very wealthy, and he's with a rich man in his death. That's just one of numerous untold specific fulfillments. In other words, God tells men and women hundreds of years before, here's what the Messiah is, where he's going to be born, here's where he's going to live, here's what he's going to be like, here's what he's going to teach, here's what he's going to say, here's what he's going to do, he's going to heal, he's going to raise the dead, and here's what's going to happen to him. He's going to be handed over, he's going to be killed, he's going to be raised. God prophesies, God promises all these things will take place so that when our king comes, we would be able to identify him. And we, even we who have known the Bible for many years, maybe we've read it through, maybe we have studied it, maybe we've been a Christian a long time. If, if I've learned anything in the Gospel of Matthew, it's that I don't pay attention enough to what God has said before And I don't consider enough how detailed God is and how he will fulfill his word down to the most minute, specific detail. And I'm emphasizing this to draw your attention to verse 7. The angel says to the women, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Huh. You ever thought about that? Why? In fact, Jesus, when the women see Jesus in the garden, in the area with the tomb, Jesus says to them, verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And then down to verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. In fact, Matthew, out of the four Gospels, is the only one at this point in the resurrection narrative who underscores this point. The angel announces, go quickly, tell his disciples, get up to Galilee. Now, this is a big deal. This isn't just hop in your car and like go 10 minutes up the road. This is like a two-day journey. You've got to walk. This is where, from mo- where most of them are from. And the message is, hurry, get going to meet Jesus in Galilee. Now, we know that Jesus has already met the women. We know from the other gospel accounts, including the gospel of John we read this morning, that Jesus does briefly visit his disciples, a few of them on a road to Emmaus, a town not far from Jerusalem, and then he appears to the disciples in the inner room. So yes, he does appear to them, 
But these are brief visits, and when he appears to them in the room where they're hiding, it's actually to rebuke them that they didn't believe the women. What do you guys need? I sent an angel, I've sent women who have seen me face to face to tell you to get up and get going to Galilee. Because Jesus himself had told them that when he died, that they were to meet him in Galilee. Go back to chapter 26 for a moment, verse 32. Matthew 26, verse 32. Jesus telling his disciples at the Last Supper that they were going to abandon him that night. And then after, verse 32, he says, after I have been raised, another reference to the fact that he's going to be raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, did Do you notice that? No, we focused on the denial of Peter. We focused on the Last Supper and all those details. We just skipped over Jesus' words, go to Galilee. Okay, he's from Galilee. He's telling him to go to Galilee. But now are you starting to piece it together? At the supper on Thursday night, he says, after I'm dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And then the angel upon Jesus's resurrection tells the women, tells disciples to go to Galilee. Jesus tells the women, tell my disciples to go to Galilee. And after several visits and prompts, his disciples, a little dense, finally the 11 go to Galilee. Now what's the deal with Galilee? I'm glad you're asking. But we should be. I mean, the Holy Spirit isn't wasting ink. What's going on? What's going on? God does what he says. He fulfills his word down to the most minute detail. And all the way back in the prophecy of Isaiah, again, nearly 800 years before the birth of Christ, God had said through Isaiah, turn back to Matthew chapter 4, because Matthew chapter 4 quotes this passage. You know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah was supposed to be born. Bethlehem was just outside of Jerusalem. It was the city of David. But you remember the Christmas story that because Herod's son was there. Joseph took his family up to Nazareth in the north. And it's there that Jesus grew up. It's there that Jesus began his ministry. It's from there that Jesus gathered most of his disciples and carried out most of his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now it's called that, even though it's a region of Israel, because where it is in the north of Israel, northeast, That is the route when the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and just about any other possible invading army over the years, that is where they would come through. So it was those tribes 
Zebulun and Naphtali living in that region in the northeast that would get the brunt of whatever army happened to be coming in to Israel. They had been trampled on again and again and again. And even in Jesus' day, up in that area was where there were a lot of Gentiles. Uh, The Roman government had some influence. And so to the religious elites down in Jerusalem, to be from Galilee was to be, well, from the less than really uh, true Jewish part of Israel. Because they've been so overrun. And notice that Matthew continues to quote from Isaiah. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death. Upon them a light shined. Jesus grew up in Nazareth and Galilee. And then he began his ministry in Capernaum in the region of Galilee. Why? Because God had determined that the region of Galilee, which had been trampled by the Gentiles, would be the first region in Israel to have the light of his risen, glorious sun to shine upon them. And yes, that was fulfilled by Jesus growing up there, by Jesus ministering there. But the land lived in the shadow of death. And God had declared that the people who live in the shadow of death, a great light would shine upon them. And the reality is that no land had seen someone who had conquered death until Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, determined that the first place he would publicly reveal himself would be in Galilee. And we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared not only to disciples, but up there in that region on the mountain to as many as 500 people at one time. It's in this backwater, trampled down region of the Gentiles, of the nations, that the risen Son of God must first begin his new ministry, declaring to his disciples that they were to go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because this is the deal, this is the plan. And often, when in the New Testament there's an allusion to or a quote from an Old Testament passage, it includes not only the verse that's quoted, but kind of what's around it. And so I invite you to turn with me, as we're coming to a close this morning, to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, not only do we learn that this region of Galilee will be the first to receive the good news. This region that was the first to be destroyed by the Assyrians. But it is this region, verse chapter 9, verse 1, of Naphtali and Zebulun, who will see a great light. But what is that light? That light is verse 6. The child that will grow up to be a man upon whose shoulders, verse 6, the government will rest. 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of of hosts will accomplish this. Do you understand that upon his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples to go to Galilee because his resurrected reign commences from Galilee. And why? Because that had been the declaration of God so long ago. I find that extraordinary. And I love it that God, to the most trampled down, disregarded, left behind region, that God determines that that is going to be the very place where the kingdom of Christ on earth, post-resurrection, will begin. Of course, there will be the day of Pentecost. I understand that in Jerusalem. But upon his resurrection, Jesus was adamant that he meet his disciples in Galilee, of all places, in Galilee. And when they met him in Galilee, they worshipped him. Matthew chapter 28. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. The chief priests and the elders, they had come up with a scheme to cover over what the soldiers had clearly seen. They paid them off and told them, look, we want you to lie and here's the money. Amazing. Those, those chief priests and elders, they had witnessed the innocence and the righteousness of Christ. They had witnessed the darkness upon the land at the crucifixion of Christ. They had gone through not one earthquake, but two. They had heard the testimony of the centurion that this was the Son of God. They had all of these evidences, and now they have soldiers coming and saying, we just saw an angel sitting on the tomb, and he opened it. This is what happened. And they so hate God, and they so are hardened against Jesus, that in spite of all of the evidence, they will not worship him. What about you? Because that's the reality In view of Jesus Christ, the Bible's presentation that there is a God, and we all know it, because we know that this world was created with order, with beauty, with design. We've all sinned. We have guilty consciences. We see the evidence in this world that there is brokenness of every kind and war and disease And finally, death. We know that we ourselves, even if we don't agree with all of God's rules and laws, we know even by our own standard, whatever it is, we haven't kept it. And God in the Bible, which is the most examined, taken apart, 
reviewed book in the history of humanity. God tells us about who we are. He tells us about who he is. He tells us about his son, and he holds him out to us, to sinners, and he asks us and he calls upon us to trust in his son because Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us. In other words, Jesus on the cross took the penalty for our sin that we deserve. Jesus, in his burial, took the penalty that we all deserve, which is not just a temporary death, but eternal death. And Jesus, rising from the dead, God vindicated, God showed that the payment was paid and that there really was hope and that whoever believes in his son will be forgiven of their sins and receive everlasting life. God holds out his son to you. What will you do? It's either one of two things. You deny him or you worship him. It's really that simple. I want to close by asking you to turn with me to Isaiah 42. One more passage that speaks of the hope of Jesus, of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 42, and if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. You can just listen. Or if you don't want to turn, you can just listen. Isaiah 42, verse 5. God is here talking a long time ago about the Messiah, the servant, the king that would come, Jesus. And God says concerning his son, this is God who created, verse 5, the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth. He says, verse 6, concerning the Messiah, I have called you. God the Father is talking to the Son here. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. You remember that Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles. The Messiah was a covenant not only for the Jews, but for the nations. To bring prisoners out of the dungeon, verse, sorry, verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out of the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. There's no greater prison than death. You can't escape it. No one can. Actual, absolute hubris and pride to think that somehow we can be the exemption on our own. All of us are in bondage to sin and death, but God declares that the Son, the Messiah, that Jesus would be the Savior of men and women who dwell in darkness. And on what basis does God declare this? On his own character. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. God foretold every aspect of Jesus' life in the Old Testament. And, and as an aside, if, if, if we're tempted to doubt this, you at least have to deal with the fact that we actually have the Isaiah scroll 
which is undeniably from a few hundred years before the birth of Jesus. And no one denies that Jesus lived. So you got to deal with that somehow. You can go online and look at the Isaiah scroll. You can find it translated and these things. These things were written far before Jesus was born. God declared it. Jesus fulfilled it. What will you do? I suggest that we join the women, that we join the disciples, and that we join untold men and women around the world and continue this day to worship Jesus. Let's pray. So may it be so, God, help us to worship you in light of the fact that you told these, foretold these things long ago. Help us to grow in our love and adoration and admiration for Jesus. And I pray if there are any here today who have yet to trust in Jesus as Savior and to acknowledge him as King, that today would be that day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.